Hey, good morning, everybody. My name is Jason Espy. I serve here uh, as an elder. It is good to praise the Lord with you this morning. Hallelujah. Uh, today's scripture reading will be in Ezekiel 28, verses 11 through 19. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard Version. All right, verse 11 starts out, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You have the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise and the emerald and the gold, the workmanship of your setting and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. Therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities and the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. That is uh, Satan's biography right there. But good morning, you all. I hope you all made it through Ice Mageddon 2024. Uh, but thank you for being here today. I'm Brian Bradshaw, the pastor at Calvary Bible Church. Today we are in our second week of a four-week series on systematic theology. We're, for this year, we're unpacking angelology. That's, that's the subject matter, the doctrine that we're looking at. So last week we looked at angels. What are angels themselves? Then this week we're looking at the subject of demons. We're defining what they are and what their role is in the universe. And then the next two weeks we're going to be looking at spiritual warfare. Specifically next week we're going to be looking at the tactics of demons and the devil essentially to discourage us and distort us. And then uh, the last week we're going to be looking at how do we fight back essentially against spiritual warfare. But some of you may be asking the question, why are we spending every January talking about doctrine or systematic theology? Well, the reason is, is is two reasons. Well, number one is because of our mission statement that Calvary Bible Church's mission is to guide all people to become biblical followers of Christ through intentional relationships. Part of being a biblical follower is is really understanding doctrine, understanding uh, the truth, and then the second piece of it is Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. The great commandment says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, 
soul, and mind. I take mind there to be our knowledge and our intellect. So part of loving God, part of being a biblical follower is just understanding doctrine. And as I kind of talked about last week, we're, we're talking about systematic theology. And that, that term can be a bit intimidating to a lot of people. It's been intimidating to me. But what all it is, all systematic theology is, is at its root, is just looking at the Bible topically. You know, what does the Bible say about election? What does the Bible say about the end times? What does the Bible say about angels? And today we're talking about what does the Bible say about demons? So when I say that, when I say the word demons, what, what emotions come to mind? What emotions do you feel? I think a lot of us probably feel fear or uncertainty or we kind of squirm in our seats just a little bit when we talk about the topic of demons. And I think part of the reason why is because we, especially in our American culture, have a uh, very skewed view of demons, of devils. If you need evidence of that, just drive around in the neighborhoods on Halloween. You tracking with me? I mean, in my neighborhood, there's like this 30-foot Grim Reaper, and I'm sitting there saying, like, you have no idea what you're doing. And then there's like another neighbor that has like a witch on a broom. It's like 25 feet high, and I'm just sitting there like, what in the world is even happening right now? But I think part of the reason why we have this kind of squeamish view of demons is, is in part because of our culture, but I also find in churches that we have kind of two different camps that we uh, are in when it comes to this subject matter. That either we're in the camp of naivety, you know, we don't really think about it, we don't talk about it, we just kind of ignore the problem, or we're on the opposite side of the coin, that we kind of look under every rock and pebble for every devil and every demon. We, we are a little bit obsessed with the subject matter. I would like to begin with a quote by C.S. Lewis. He says this regarding demons and devils. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's true. That's true in our culture, but that's true also in churches that, as he said, we find ourselves in typically two different camps. Either we just completely ignore the subject matter altogether, we disbelieve, we're happily naive about the whole subject, or we're overly obsessed with that particular doctrine. So what I want to do today is I want to unpack the doctrine of demons. And what I want to do is actually want to begin with their leader. I want to start out by understanding their leader. And I think part of the difficulty we have with demons, there's a, there's a, there's a quote from a movie some 20 years ago. It was a Batman film I, was a really, I really enjoyed in college. A character says that people always fear what they don't understand. And I think that's true, especially in this particular subject matter. So I think what we're going to do today is we're just going to have an understanding of their origin. What are they? What is their ability? What's their mission? What's their destination? And hopefully with that, we'll kind of compile a good understanding of demons and their leader, Satan. So if you have your Bible, today we're going to be in Ezekiel 28. But as I've kind of said, you know, systematic theology is studying the Bible Topically, you're looking at different passages throughout the scripture to understand a particular subject matter. So 
today we're going to be kind of all over the place. You know, we're going to be looking at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1 and 3, and we're going to be looking at the very end of the Bible in Revelation chapter 20, and basically everywhere in between. So if you have your Bible, the, the passage I'm going to spend the most time in is in Ezekiel 28, but I'm actually going to begin in John chapter 8, verse 44. I want to start off by talking about the leader of demons, the ruler of them. And the reason I want to start out is I think it will help us understand the category as a whole if we understand their leader. So what I want to do is start out with John chapter 8. This is where we are. And Jesus is speaking here. He says, you are of your father, the devil. Uh, That would be uh, terrible to hear from that. Uh, And you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. And this is what I want you guys to see. Because there's no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So this is describing Satan or the leader of the demons. Now what I want you to notice here is that what does it call him? It says, for he is a liar and the father of lies. There is some discussion in the world, one of the, one of the things that skeptics of Christianity point out is that how could a good loving God allow evil to exist or how could even evil exist at all if God created all things that he is perfect and holy? Well, the truth is, is that he did not introduce evil into the world. He made an allowance for it. And we see here that Satan is the father of lies. He is the father of evil. I'll say this, that God could not have been the creator of evil. What does it say in James chapter 1, verse 13? It says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. God obviously made an allowance for evil, and we see here that Satan is the father of lies. He is the originator of evil, although God made an allowance for it. Let's go a little bit deeper into Satan himself. The word Satan means adversary. means adversary. In other parts of the scripture, he is called the devil, which means slanderer. He's called the evil one, the tempter, the murderer, the father of lies, the wily serpent, a ferocious dragon. He's referred to in other parts of the scripture as the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians chapter 2, a devouring lion, a thief, and the god of this world. That is who he is as the leader of that, that section of the unseen realm. One scholar Define Satan as this. Satan is a spirit being with intelligence, emotions, and a will. He is created, not creator, not possessing attributes of God like omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence, living under the sovereign will of God within the limitations of Almighty God. So that is who Satan is as a whole. He is the founder. He is the father of lies. He is a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. He is this invisible, not omnipresent spirit that lives. And, but what's his biography? How did he 
get started in this world. So if you have your Bible, now I want to look at Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28. We'll begin in verse 11. There's really two different passages that you see with Satan's biography. You see the biggest section of scripture that really talks about his background is in Ezekiel chapter 28. And I'll tell you why here in just a moment. I believe that this is his background. But there's also another passage in Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah 14 is probably the most famous of his, of these two. But in my opinion, Ezekiel 28 is the most descriptive. Now notice how it begins. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 11 says this, and again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, now let me put a pause right here. Now I want you to notice a couple of different things about verse 12. Number one, I want you to notice who he's addressing. The son of man, who do we know that to be? We know that to be Christ in Daniel chapter seven and also in the gospel accounts. The son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him. Now, who is he obviously addressing here on a, on a literal basis? We would say that he is addressing the king of Tyre. And, and, and there's some discussion on who that is. You know, who is this king of Tyre? Is he a man? Is he figurative? Is he a metaphor? What is he? And I believe the king of Tyre here is referring to Satan himself. It's the biography of Satan. And the king of Tyre is just a metaphorical title for him. We'll see that. And this is the reason why I believe in verse 13 specifically and verse 15, we'll see why I believe the king of Tyre is Lucifer as we would know him. Thus says the Lord God, notice how it describes him. You had seal, you had the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Then notice in verse 13, and you were in Eden. From my recollection, I don't believe there were any other humans in the Garden of Eden besides what? Adam and Eve, right? But it says here that you were in Eden, the Garden of God. So that's the reason why I believe the King of Tyre mentioned in verse 11 and 12 is not a literal King of Tyre, but it's referring to the biography of Lucifer. You were in Eden, the Garden of God. And notice how it describes him. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond. And the beryl, I don't know how to say that word, maybe you can correct me after church today, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, you can help me with that one too, the turquoise and the emerald, and the gold and the workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you. On that day, you were created, they were prepared, you were the anointed cherubim who covers, and I placed you there. I want you to notice verse 12 and 13. How does it describe this king of Tyre? It says... That every precious stone was covering the ruby, the topaz. Detail number one is that Satan was a prized creation of God. If you have your notes, Satan or Lucifer was a prized creation of God. And then detail number two is that he was in Eden. The reference of Eden in verse 12 is, like I've already said, is the reason why I believe is not referring to the king of Tyre, but is referring to him as a whole. But I want you to um, think about the implications of Satan 
before his fall, being in the Garden of Eden. That the fall of the angels had to happen sometime in Genesis chapter 2. There's two implications of him being Eden. Number one, that Satan and the angels had to be created before mankind was created. And number two, that the fall of the angels had to happen sometime in Genesis chapter 2. Because what does it say in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31? It says this, And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So Satan was in the Garden of Eden. He had to fall sometime in Genesis chapter 2. So what else does that tell you? That number three, that Adam and Eve, especially Adam, was in the Garden of Eden for some indefinite period of time. You know, when we think about uh, the idea of the Garden of Eden, kind of my childhood Sunday school view of that whole story is that Adam was in the garden for 24 hours, he got bored, and then God created Eve, and they got bored, and then Satan tempted the next day. It's kind of not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I think Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden for a prolonged period of time. Why do I say that? Well, two different reasons. Number one, the man had to name all the animals. Okay, there's a lot of animals in the universe. Okay, and number two... God had to realize, and Adam had to realize, that he was, it was not good for him to be alone. So you see Adam and Eve, they're in the Garden of Eden for some unspecified period of time, weeks, months, probably actually years in the Garden of Eden, that Lucifer who turned into Satan, which is, means the deceiver, that he fell sometime in Genesis chapter 2, so Satan's biography is number one, he was a prized creation of God. Number two, he was in Eden. And then number, notice number three in verse 14, who is he? On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. Well, wait a second. What is a cherubim? It is the guardian of God's holiness. If you remember our conversation last week, who guarded the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3? It was a cherubim. How is the inside of the temple decorated? It is with cherubim. So Satan is a fallen angel, yes, but he's a cherubim. Okay, okay, Byron, why is that important? Think about our image of him in our culture. He, we see him in our culture. He has kind of like a, you know, a cow face or a pig face. And he's got horns and he's red and he has hooved feet and he has a pitchfork and he's like buff. Okay. It's like for whatever reason, he has to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay. That's, that's our view. But looking back at last week, what are cherubim? They have four faces. They have four wings. They have human hands, they have human legs and hooved feet. So I suspect Satan has four wings and four faces. He's probably pretty, pretty uh, scary looking, but he's also probably, in a sense, kind of looks like an angel of light. He can actually appear as an angel of light. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's probably impressive looking. He is a fallen cherubim 
So he is a prized creation of God. He is a cherubim. He was in Eden before the fall. And then notice the last big detail says, you were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Notice how it describes him. You were blameless in your ways. Why is that important? Because only God can create perfect things. He is a perfect God, holy and impeccable. He created all the universe, including us, including the angels, in perfection, but made allowances for evil. You were blameless in your ways from the days you were created until... And righteousness was found in you, verse 16, by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned, therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherubim, from the midst of the stones of fire. So Satan's biography, number one, he was a prized creation, number two, he was in Eden, number three, he was a cherubim, if you have your notes. And number four, he was created perfect, but was found to have imperfection or unrighteousness or what we would know to be the case is he was found to have pride and envy, pride and envy. So the unrighteousness that he had, that Lucifer had before the fall and at the fall's moment, it was that he had envy and pride. But where do I get that from? Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, says this, But you said in your heart, so this is the second part of Satan's biography. Ezekiel 28 is his whole background, and Isaiah 14 describes his fall. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north, and I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the Most High. So the unrighteousness found in Lucifer's heart was that he wanted to be like the Most High. He wanted to be like God. Um, what, what struggle did, did Satan introduce to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? What was the temptation that he offered to them? Is that he says that you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That the same Fate and the same temptation, the same, in a sense, sin that Satan fell to of pride is the same temptation that Adam and Eve fell to in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to say something really quick that I think the root of all sin, the root of all sin that we have is the desire for control. The desire to be like God. To be our own master. Well, you know, the IRS, you know, I pay an awful lot to them. So, you know, I don't, I don't really think they need any more for me. Okay? Well, I don't really need to pay my unpaid parking tickets because it was unfair. Right? I don't really want to love my spouse. So I just don't feel like it, right? I'm not going to really work hard and obey my boss because he's unfair anyways. And no, no, okay, no one in the room? All right, the cold weather has stiffened us up a little bit, okay. Um, That's the root of sin, is pride, is wanting to be our own master. 
And if you boil it down, I think that's the antithesis, that is the nexus of all of it, is the desire for control. I mean, think about uh, the ways people relate to their family or to other people at work. They're passive-aggressive, aggressive, abusive. All that is an attempt at control. It all is. The root of our original fall, the root of the fall of Satan, when he was in the Garden of Eden, in this unspecified period of time, in Genesis chapter 2, the root of the issue is his desire to be like God. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. So who is Satan? He was a prized cherubim, created sinless, falling to envy, becoming the father of evil and the leader of demons. So that is the leader. That is who the ruler is of that domain, of the unseen realm. So what I want to do now is expand it from just talking about the leader to us talking about the whole. What are demons as a whole? One person defines them, demons are Satan's minions. As Satan is their ruler, so they are his minions. In Jude chapter 1 verse 6, 2 Peter chapter 2 verse 4, it describes that demons are fallen angels, that those who followed Satan in his demise from an angel of light to an angel of darkness. Some scholars believe that in Revelation chapter 12 verse 4, that it describes that one-third of the angels fell. So two-thirds, three-thirds of the angels that were originally created, right, one-third fell, became demons, and then two-thirds of the angels remain as God's messengers. Of the one-third that fell, there are two groups. There are the groups of demons that are confined to the fiery pits of hell currently, And then the second group are those that wander the earth to thwart the plans of God. Some scholars believe that the sons of God are the demons that fell and that those are the ones that are in the fiery pits currently are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's cool. Just go read that really strange story. I've already had multiple people ask me, who are the sons of God in Genesis chapter 6? And I'm like, you know what? If we haven't figured it out in 5,000 years of church history, probably not going to figure that one out completely. Um, you have no idea what I'm talking about. It's cool. Just go read the story. It's there. I promise. Uh, Genesis chapter 6. So we see demons. Some of them are confined. Some of them are wandering the earth to thwart the plans of God. One scholar says this, demons possess great intelligence and curiosity. In Mark chapter 1, verse 24, demons know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. They understand who God is. They understood Jesus to be the Holy One of God. They understand the plan of salvation, James chapter 2, verse 19, and also the parable of the four soils. They know also of their eventual doom. We see in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29. So we see their leader. We see demons as a whole, that they are fallen angels. One third of angels fell. But what is their end? What is their destination? What's going to happen to them at the end of all time? So their destination 
Their final destination is seen in Revelation chapter 20. That's where we're going to spend. So I've been in Genesis 3 and now I'm in Revelation 20. So I'm literally at both ends of the Bible. And this is describing their end. What, what happens to them? So this is the section of the Bible on the millennial kingdom. And this describes the end of things. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short period of time. Before I came up on stage, I had a conversation with a, with a friend in the service, and he said, he was right, that the beginning and the end of human history are the same. That mankind was created in perfection and sinned. And then at the end of times in the millennial kingdom, he lives in perfection and then falls again under temptation. So the enemy and his minions are bound for a thousand years, and this is what it says in verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations one last time, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And a fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who was who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet already were, also were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what is their destiny? What is their end? That during the millennial kingdom, demons will be confined into hell, they will be released, and they will cause one last uprising at the end of the millennial kingdom, one last chance. And then God will condemn them for torment day and night forever and ever. Matthew 25, 41 exclaims this. It says this, Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Okay, so wait a second. Let's put this all together. The devil was a fallen cherubim, a prized creation of God who fell to pride. And one-third of the angels followed him in his demise. Some of them are confined to fiery pits of hell currently. Some of them are walking amongst the earth to tempt and thwart God's plans. And their destiny is for sure. That one day, at the end of all times, they will be locked away in the fiery pits of hell for eternity. And guess what? They're smart. They know that. They know that their time is coming. So then they're on earth and their time is a clicking. Let me just say something. Okay, if you knew that you were going to die in a week from now, like, like seven days, an angel came down from heaven and said, you are going to pass away at church next Sunday morning. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll call the ambulance. Okay, um, what would you do? Those seven days, you would have a sense of urgency. You'd be doing everything important to you. I think the demons know their clock is ticking. They understand that Jesus Christ came, that he died on the cross, and they are trying everything in their power to thwart God's plan for each of us here today. So then what is their mission? 
You know, what are they, what are they trying to do? So what we're going to do next week is we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. We're going to talk about their tactics. What, what do they use? What is their weapons? What is in their tool belt to discourage us? But what I want to do is just talk about the four pieces of their mission. What are they trying to do here and now? Well, number one, it says in John 10, 10, it says this, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. That demons and Satan come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Christ has come to give us an abundant life. So how do they steal, kill, and destroy? Well, number one, they come to tempt. They come to tempt us to fall to sin. Think about since the Garden of Eden itself, what did Satan do for those indefinite period of time in the beginning of Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 he tempted Adam and Eve to be like God that they would know good and evil that Satan and his dominion come to tempt us we also see that in Matthew chapter 4 that they tempted Jesus in the wilderness trying to tarnish the son of God so number one they come to tempt number two they come to thwart God's purposes they come to thwart God's purposes to discourage, to spread lies. I mean, think about the evidence of that in Matthew chapter 16, where Peter confronts Jesus. And what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, right? For you are a stumbling block. So in any way, shape, or form, they cause us to be tempted. The root of all sin is our desire to be in control, and they also to thwart God's purposes. They're trying to cause Jesus, cause us not to follow God. Number three, they come to lie and to spread false doctrine. They come to lie and spread false doctrine. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So he's come to tempt, to thwart, to lie, to spread false doctrine. And number four, he's... Demons and Satan, their mission, their goal is to cause believers to fall, or I would even say to quit. To question their faith, to walk away from Christ, to throw up their hands, and to forget it all together. Why do I say that? Why do I say that's part of their mission? I mean, what, what famous story do we have in the scripture about Satan coming to God and testing a righteous man. The book of Job, Job chapter 1, right? It says that he is righteous more than all others, and Satan is trying to discourage and dispel him, causing him to quit. What does it also say of Judas in the upper room? It says what? That Satan entered him. So the goal and part of the mission of demons is to get Christians to throw up their hands and quit. I'm just going to say this. Demons are active. They're 
in the world, they are in the universe, trying to disrupt the plan of God, trying to discourage. You know, I was, um, you know, when you, when you talk about spiritual warfare, when you talk about these kinds of things, it, it, it does, the temptation is now to look under every rock, <laughs> under every pebble for the enemy, right? That is kind of the tendency that we have. But it also, it shouldn't, we shouldn't go that far, but we should be aware of their work. Like even this morning, I, I kind of just went into church and I had a kind of a discouraging thought. And I said, well, that's really random in my brain. Why am I even thinking that? Well, maybe it's spiritual warfare. Just the discouragement of thought. Just having that thought pop into my mind. You know, I think part of their mission is to cause Christians to quit. I, I, I've been thinking about this, and I, and I made an observation over the last couple of years. I looked at all of the different faces of all the different Christians that I've known over the last 25, 20 years, and I looked at all these, these Christians that had quit the faith, the ones that had walked away, ones that I thought would follow God the rest of their life, like pillars of the faith. And then they, and like all of a sudden, you know, they're walking, they're going really strong, and, and they go off into forgetting it all together. And what is always the first thing to go? Think about all of the believers that you have known that have quit the faith. What is always the first thing to go? It is church attendance, not being with other believers. What typically happens is when people you know, quit the faith, they have some type of conflict within the body of Christ, and that conflict turns into discouragement, and then they stop going to church, and then there develops this wedge to push this Christian further and further and further away from the body of Christ, and eventually they just walk away altogether. That is spiritual warfare, friends. They're trying to get us to quit, to be discouraged, to walk away from the faith, the question I have today, and what I would like to walk away with is this one. So what? You know, how do we take this doctrine of demons, of the devil, and apply it to our life? I'm going to revisit the quote from the very beginning, from C.S. Lewis. It says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive, unholy unhealthy interest in them we are in one of two camps when it comes to this particular doctrine we just ignore it altogether or we are hypersensitive to it but neither one of them is the right move i'm going to leave you with just kind of three different ideas three different steps you can call it three different principles on how to apply this particular sermon to our life. Number one is this, is to be aware. It's to be aware. Don't just live in naivety. Don't just act like they don't exist. But be aware of their existence. Be aware that they are real. And they are in the world. And they will try to tempt you. They will try to discourage you. They will distort your relationships here on earth. They will do anything in their power to thwart God's plan. And in your life, they will do anything to cause conflict in the body of Christ. Because this is kind of the bedrock of faith. This in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
Number one is to be aware. Number two is to be bold. What I mean by that is don't be afraid of them. There's nothing to be afraid of. We need to be aware of it. But friends, listen to me. We live in a universe where there is still a sovereign, almighty, loving God at the throne. No matter what Satan's minions and he does under the earth and on the earth, that he is still under the thumb of Almighty God. That somehow, some way, in the midst of temptations, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of discouragement, it says that all things work together for the good to those who love God, to those called according to his purpose. And let me just say something else too on demons themselves. Be bold. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, guess what? They can tempt you. They can distort you. They can dis- discourage you. They can cause you to have false beliefs, as we saw in Second Corinthians chapter 11. But they cannot possess you. They cannot control you. They can merely cause your life to be tempted to take the wrong direction. Number one, be aware. Number two, be bold. And number three, be cautious. Be cautious. What does it say in Ephesians chapter 4? Go File back in your brain and go back to Ephesians chapter 4, specifically verse 26. What does it say? It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What is it? Next verse. And do not what? Give the devil a foothold or an opportunity. Literally in the original language, it means place. A place in your life. Friends, listen to me. Be cautious. We can allow sin into our life. We have a momentary lapse of judgment. A momentary fall of sin. And we can give the enemy a place in our life, a stronghold, a foothold to cause us to be further and further and further and further into doubt more and more and more and more. And specifically in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 26 it says be angry and do not sin. Let me just say something real quick. Um, unrighteous, unhealthy anger. What does it turn into? Every time. Bitterness, grudges, anger, unhealthy anger, right? So what is he saying? He's saying, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. Or in your anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil a place. And it says at the very end of chapter 4, be kind or another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Jesus in Christ has forgiven you. Friends, listen to me. Be cautious. You know, um, we in evangelical churches don't really like to talk about sin, right? But it's just part of life. We all struggle with temptation. We all struggle with sin. We all struggle with the flesh. We all struggle with the world and and not feeling good enough or whatever it is. But friends, listen, be cautious. Do not let the devil have a foothold or a place in your life where he can just kind of set up camp. If there is that place in your life, ask the Lord, come to him and ask for forgiveness for he is a loving God. Forgive other people. Do not be bitter. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger be set aside from you, along with all malice. 
but be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as Jesus and Christ has forgiven you. That is how we get rid of strongholds in our life. We confess our sins, we forgive, and we let things go. Be aware, be bold, and be cautious of the sin that we have in our life. That is the doctrine of demons, that they are fallen angels. They fell to pride and temptation with Satan sometime during the Garden of Eden, and they are out to thwart God's purposes and plan and to discourage us from and cause us to walk away from the faith altogether. But their destiny is sure. Their, their final judgment is sure. We have nothing to fear. Before I close, allow me to just share the truth. Uh, if you do not know where your relationship with God is today, if you are unsure if you would die today and you would go to heaven, then the scripture says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth is that you and I are sinners. Amen. That's what makes us susceptible to all this stuff we were talking about. That you and I are sinners and Christ came and he died on a cross to offer us the gift of salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that if we would receive him and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we would have eternal life. If you do not know where your relationship with God is, if you want to know more information about how to have a relationship with God, then I would encourage you to see me after the service today. As it says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. My question is here today, is there anyone here that needs Jesus, that needs to have a relationship with him? And if you do not have one, I would encourage you to seek him and believe in him as Lord and Savior of your life. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for just the ability to talk about this interesting but also kind of difficult subject matter on doctrine and just the subject matter of demons and and their origination and their leader and their destination. But Lord, I just pray that we would be aware of of their work, that they're out there trying to discourage and to tempt us to fall, that they're trying to cause us to believe false doctrine, but also let us not be afraid of them. Let us, let us love you and let us seek you. And Lord, let us also be cautious of allowing them a place in our life. And uh, Lord, I pray for that. I pray if there is a place in our life that we would forgive and that we would let it go and that we would be kind and tender heart of forgiving. And Lord, thank you for this church. I just thank you uh, for everyone here. Thank you for those that made it. Thank you for many, many that are home uh, because of ice. Be with them, bless them, protect us. In Jesus' name, amen.